It's February 5th, 2020. It's the 13th and final day of the impeachment trial of President Donald J. Trump. I'm Margaret Taylor, senior editor at Lawfare. Today, senators cast their votes on whether the president is guilty or not guilty on both articles of impeachment. Each senator's name was called, they stood at their desks, and their votes were recorded. The president was acquitted on both articles. Senator Mitt Romney, Republican from Utah, joined all Democrats in voting to convict on the first article of impeachment on abuse of power. Afterward, I sat down with my colleagues at Lawfare to reflect on this impeachment trial. That discussion is included in this episode. This is the impeachment, episode 12, the final vote. Sorry. It's never enough when it comes to President Trump. This sham process is the low point in the Senate for me. If you think you've done the country a good service by legitimizing this impeachment process, what you have done is unleash the partisan forces of hell. Mr. President, this has been a divisive time for our country, but I think it has nonetheless been an important constitutional process for us to follow. As this chapter of history draws to a close, one thing is clear to me. As I've said before, our country deserves better than this. They deserve better from the president. They deserve better from the Congress. We must find a way to come together to set aside partisan differences and to focus on what we have in common as Americans. While so much is going on in our favor these days, we still face great challenges, both domestically and internationally. But it remains my firm belief that united, we can conquer them and remain the greatest hope for the people around the world. I will be voting to defend this president's actions. I'll be voting against undoing the vote taken by the American people some three and a half years ago. I'll be voting for the principle of freedom, for the very principles that our Constitution was designed to protect. I urge all of my colleagues to reject these deeply factually and legally flawed articles of impeachment to vote not guilty. Thank you, Mr. President. I yield the floor. President. Senator from Utah. Thank you, Mr. President. The Constitution is at the foundation of our republic's success, and we each strive not to lose sight of our promise to defend it. The Constitution established the vehicle of impeachment that has occupied both houses of our Congress these many days. We have labored to faithfully execute our responsibilities to it. We have arrived at different judgments, but I hope we respect each other's good faith. The allegations made in the articles of impeachment are very serious. As a senator juror, I swore an oath before God to exercise impartial justice. I am profoundly religious. My faith is at the heart of who I am. I take an oath before God as enormously consequential. I knew from the outset that being tasked with judging the president, the leader of my own party, would be the most difficult decision I have ever faced. I was not wrong. The House managers presented evidence supporting their case, and the White House counsel disputed that case. In addition, the president's team presented three defenses First, that there could be no impeachment without a statutory crime. 
Second, that the Biden's con conduct justified the president's actions. And third, that the judgment of the president's actions should be left to the voters. Let me first address those three defenses. The historic meaning of the words high crimes and misdemeanors, the writings of the founders, and my own reasoned judgment convinced me that a president can indeed commit acts against the public trust that are so egregious that while they are not statutory crimes, they would demand removal from office. To maintain that the lack of a codified and comprehensive list of all the outrageous acts that a president might conceivably commit renders Congress powerless to remove such a president defies reason. The President's counsel also notes that Vice President Biden appeared to have a conflict of interest when he undertook an effort to remove the Ukrainian prosecutor general. If he knew of the exorbitant compensation his son was receiving from a company actually under investigation, the Vice President should have recused himself. While ignoring a conflict of interest is not a crime, it is surely very wrong. With regards to Hunter Biden, taking excessive advantage of his father's name is unsavory, but also not a crime. Given that in neither the case of the father nor the son was any evidence presented by the president's counsel that a crime had been committed, the president's insistence that they be investigated by the Ukrainians is hard to explain other than as a political pursuit. There's no question in my mind that were their names not Biden, the president would never have done what he did. The defense argues that the Senate should leave the impeachment decision to the voters. While that logic is appealing to our democratic instincts, it is inconsistent with the Constitution's requirement that the Senate, not the voters, try the president. Hamilton explained that the founders' decision to invest senators with this obligation rather than leave it to the voters was intended to minimize, to the extent possible, the partisan sentiments of the public at large. So the verdict is ours to render under our Constitution. The people will judge us for how well and faithfully we fulfill our duty. The grave question the Constitution tasks senators to answer is whether the president committed an act so extreme and egregious that it rises to the level of a high crime and misdemeanor. Yes, he did. The president asked a foreign government to investigate his political rival. The president withheld vital military funds from that government to press it to do so. The president delayed funds for an American ally at war with Russian invaders. The president's purpose was personal and political. Accordingly, the president is guilty of an appalling abuse of public trust. What he did was not perfect. No, it was a flagrant assault on our electoral rights, our national security, and our fundamental values. Corrupting an election to keep oneself in office is perhaps the most abusive and destructive violation of one's oath of office that I can imagine. In the last several weeks, I've received numerous calls and texts. Many demanded in their words that I stand with the team. I can assure you that that thought has been very much on my mind. You see, I support a great deal of what the president has done. I voted with him 80% of the time. But my promise before God 
to apply impartial justice required that I put my personal feelings and political biases aside. Were I to ignore the evidence that has been presented and disregard what I believe my oath and the Constitution demands of me for the sake of a partisan end, it would, I fear, expose my character to history's rebuke and the censure of my own conscience. I'm aware that there are people in my party and in my state who will strenu strenuously disapprove of my decision. And in some quarters, I will be vehemently denounced. I'm sure to hear abuse from the president and his supporters. Does anyone seriously believe that I would consent to these consequences other than from an inescapable conviction that my oath before God demanded it of me? I sought to, hear, sought to hear testimony from John Bolton, not only because I believed he could add context to the charges, but also because I hoped that what he might say could raise reasonable doubt and thus remove from me the awful obligation to vote for impeachment. Like each member of this deliberative body, I love our country. I believe that our Constitution was inspired by providence. I'm convinced that freedom itself is dependent on the strength and vitality of our national character. As it is with each senator, my vote is an act of conviction. We've come to different conclusions, fellow senators, but I trust we have all followed the dictates of our conscience. I acknowledge that my verdict will not remove the president from office. The results of this Senate court will in fact be appealed to a higher court, the judgment of the American people. Voters will make the final decision, just as the president's lawyers have implored. My vote will likely be in the minority in the Senate. But irrespective of these things, with my vote, I will tell my children and their children that I did my duty to the best of my ability, believing that my country expected it of me. I will only be one name among many, no more, no less, to future generations of Americans who look at the record of this trial. They will note merely that I was among the senators who determined that what the president did was wrong, grievously wrong. We are all footnotes at best in the annals of history, but in the most powerful nation on earth, the nation conceived in liberty and justice, that distinction is enough for any citizen. Thank you, Mr. President. I yield the floor. Hear ye, hear ye. All persons are commanded to keep silence on pain of imprisonment while the Senate of the United States is sitting for the trial of the articles of impeachment exhibited by the House of Representatives against Donald John Trump, President of the United States. As a reminder to everyone in the chamber, as well as those in the galleries, demonstrations of approval or disapproval are prohibited. The majority leader is recognized. Mr. Chief Justice, the Senate is now ready to vote on the articles of impeachment, and after that is done, we will adjourn the court of impeachment. Each senator, when his or her name is called, will stand in his or her place and vote guilty or not guilty as required by Rule 23 of the Senate Rules on Impeachment. Article 1, Section 3, Clause 6 of the Constitution regarding the vote required for conviction on impeachment 
provides that no person shall be convicted without the concurrence of two-thirds of the members present. The question is on the first article of impeachment. Senators, how say you? Is the respondent, Donald John Trump, guilty or not guilty? A roll call vote is required. The clerk will call the roll. Mr. Alexander. Not guilty. Mr. Alexander, not guilty. Ms. Baldwin. Ms. Baldwin, guilty. Mr. Barrasso. In this article of impeachment, 48 senators have pronounced Donald John Trump, President of the United States, guilty as charged. 52 senators have pronounced him not guilty as charged. Two-thirds of the senators present not having pronounced him guilty, the Senate adjudges that the respondent, Donald John Trump, President of the United States, is not guilty as charged in the first article of impeachment. The question is on the second article of impeachment. Senators, how say you? Is the respondent, Donald John Trump, guilty or not guilty? The clerk will call the roll. Mr. Alexander. Not guilty. Not guilty. Ms. Baldwin. Guilty. guilty. Mr. Barrasso. Not on this article of impeachment, 47 senators have pronounced Donald John Trump, President of the United States, guilty as charged. 53 senators have pronounced him not guilty as charged. Two-thirds of the senators present not having pronounced him guilty, the Senate adjudges that respondent Donald John Trump, President of the United States, is not guilty as charged in the second article of impeachment. The presiding officer directs judgment to be entered in accordance with the judgment of the Senate as follows. The Senate, having tried Donald John Trump, President of the United States, upon two articles of impeachment exhibited against him by the House of Representatives, and two-thirds of the senators present not having found him guilty of the charges contained therein, it is therefore ordered and adjudged that the said Donald John Trump be, and he is hereby, acquitted of the charges in said articles. I think Mitt Romney's decision to vote to convict on the first article of impeachment, it was actually a surprise to me. It's been probably the most surprising thing that has happened during this whole process. Uh, I would say I just, I was not expecting it. So uh, he, I should also say he is he said in his speech that he would vote to acquit on the second article, the obstruction of Congress article. Um, and so I do think it, it creates kind of an interesting moment here, uh, in particular for Senate Republicans, but also for the sort of how history views this particular moment. Um, I did listen to almost all of the speeches that senators chose to give on Tuesday night, all through uh, Wednesday, uh, or, or sorry, Monday night, all through Tuesday, uh, and then this morning, Wednesday. And I, you know, there was a, a diverse sort of set of, of arguments that different people made. Um, for Democrats, they, it sounded, everything sounded more or less um, similar. Uh, people were walking through the facts and, uh, you know, were pretty convinced of them. And also, you know, a lot of, of talk about how this does rise to the level of being an impeachable offense. I'd say on the Republican side, it was... It was more diverse. Um, the way I viewed it was, you know, the, the president's defense counsel, the president, offered sort of like a buffet of arguments that Senate Republicans could choose from, the uh, sort of cherry on top being uh, 
Professor Dershowitz's uh, legal theories about what constitutes a high crimes and misdemeanor. And so you did see some variety. Uh, people sort of chose from the buffet the, the arguments or rationales that, that they wanted. Some people went a, a deep dive into a particular one, and, and, but most of them, I'd say, sort of ran the gamut and, and chose a bunch of these, these arguments and talked about all of them. David, what stands out to you about the, um, ab- about the last phase of the impeachment trial, or I guess it's really the, the argument phase of senators announcing what they're doing? Yeah, it's the lack of engagement with what probably will become what history remembers as the tagline of this impeachment, which the, the very few senators, yes, some Democrats, but the very few senators on the Republican side, certainly, who are acknowledging that there were no witnesses, there were no new documents, that there was no real trial. Every impeachment has a story that is remembered by the history books. Andrew Johnson, to the extent there is one, it's that they laid a trap for him, wrote a law that they knew he would break, he did, they impeached him, they tried to convict him, they missed by one vote. Nixon, I would argue, is the tapes. You lie to your own party, and then you get caught on tape saying the opposite, it doesn't end well. Clinton, overzealous impeachment perhaps, uh, the risk of going after personal affairs. The, the lesson of this impeachment 50 years from now will be no witnesses, no new documents, no trial. And I found that the speeches I've been listening to, people are just skimming over that, pretending that history won't notice. History will notice. Quinto, one of the odd things about this impeachment trial is that it uh, ends with a lot of loose ends. Um, we know the Bolton book is coming. Uh, we know there are a lot of documents that will eventually become public. Uh, how do you understand the Republican senators who basically took the position that the evidence doesn't support the impeachment, notwithstanding the fact that the evidentiary record is known to be incomplete? At this point, it's pretty clear to me that this is just a purely political calculation of how they can best get away with voting to acquit the president and so keeping voters who support Trump on their side in the coming elections um, and allowing themselves to say down the line when, if and when new damaging information comes out, well, gosh, you know, I, I had no possible idea and I just had couldn't have guessed that this was going to come. And so you kind of inoculate yourself. I think, I think that that position is obviously politically driven insofar as if a Republican senator, you know, say two months from now, if there's a new scandal comes out and says, you know, gosh, I couldn't possibly have known about all this information that was in Bolton's book. And that's why I voted to acquit. Having also voted not to hear any witnesses, that's absurd. It strikes me as as pretty transparent. um, But it does mean that, you know, any given Republican senator can say, well, you know, I didn't know this material that was in Bolton's book. I wasn't aware of that when I voted to acquit, even if they happened to have voted not to hear Bolton in the first place. Um, So it gives them that political cover, even if it's paper thin. um, And that paper thin political cover is really what they're looking for right now. 
All right, let's talk about the one Republican senator who does not seem to be looking for political cover and will certainly lack it over the next few months, uh, new liberal hero Mitt Romney. Um, is there any reason in any of your minds to be cynical about what Romney did to sort of look for uh, alternative explanations other than conviction here? I don't see any explanation for Mitt Romney's vote other than what he thought was the right thing to do. He doesn't get a political advantage from this, uh, even in Utah, as quirky as it is. He's certainly taken heat already and will continue to take heat. He, by the definition of the word, probably fits a profile in courage for the vote. I don't know if he has an endgame here. I don't know if he's thought out, well, this is something I'm going to play in two years when I do something else. I think he actually thought... I, I can't not do this, perhaps in part because of what's likely to come out later. I will look like the biggest horse's ass in the Senate if I, of all people, take a choice that is later proved to be ridiculous. So if you watch his speech, um, which I recommend to listeners, there's a moment in the beginning when he actually uh, visibly starts to cry. Uh, and it's, you know, he pulls himself together and continues. But, uh, you know, he's talking about his religious faith and the, the role that, that God and his faith plays and is playing in this decision. Um, and then you see that moment where he tears up. Uh, my personal impression of it was that it was just this is a genuinely very difficult thing for him to do. And he's doing it because he feels like his oath requires it. Um, so, you know, I view him as, as an actual, you know, example of political courage. Uh, I don't see him having much advantage, um, except perhaps that, you know, being that one sole lone voice who stood up for what I view as the right thing in that moment, um, you know, I think I think history will likely treat him kindly and treat him well. That is how I suspect it ends for him in the long run. So that's pretty interesting, because if you think back to Mitt Romney's run for president, the one thing nobody said about him is this is a person of high conviction, right? There were all these, uh, all these uh, ads and articles and whatever about how he was, you know, pro-choice-ish when he was governor of, of Massachusetts and he was uh, the creator of Obamacare, the, the Romneycare model of Obamacare before he changed his mind about it, and that he was a quite different national politician from the kind of moderate Republican Massachusetts politician. And we go from there to Margaret Taylor saying in all earnestness that, you know, this is a matter of conviction and he's shown great courage. I am, and, I am very cynical. Uh, so. Yeah, no, no, yeah. I'm not teasing you. I'm, 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 <laughs> remarking on that it is, among other things, a bit of a transformation for Mitt Romney. So explain it to us, Quinta. I, like Margaret, was really struck by Romney's invocation of his religious faith, and in particular of how he connected that to the oath he swore as a senator acting as a juror in the impeachment trial, because, of course, um, senators do swear a separate oath to do impartial justice at the beginning of the trial. And we were all treated to a great demonstration of Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell 
showing us what that doesn't look like when Lindsey Graham literally announced before the trial even began, I am not an impartial juror. And so it was very striking to me to see Romney stand up there and point to the oath and say, I consider this an obligation to the oath that I swore to the Senate. Um, It is easy to be cynical about this. And look, I've made as many jokes about Mitt Romney flip-flopping as anyone and as many jokes about, you know, the dog on the top of the car and everything that everyone was joking about in 2012. But I do think there is something genuinely powerful in this moment. And I, I've i been thinking about um, Max Weber's Politics as a Vocation, this great essay where he has this beautiful passage about how the real act of politics is when a mature person is aware of the res- their responsibility for the consequences of their actions and reaches the point where they say, here I stand, I can do no other. And Weber writes, this is something genuinely human and moving, and every one of us who's not spiritually dead must realize the possibility of finding themselves at some time in that position. And I think that, that that is really what I come back to here, that it doesn't mean that Romney hasn't flip-flopped in the past or that he might not flip-flop in the future, but that this is a moment of real conviction and humanity. I'll build on that to say I, I think it also reveals the difference between running for president and voting as a senator in, in something like this impeachment trial. When you're running for president, you're competing for votes. You're, everything you say is going to have an effect on the poll the next day and the ultimate balloting. Whereas in this case, you can, in a sense, afford to reflect on it. The fact that he is the only one who has reflected on it in this way with this result in his circumstances is perhaps disheartening in a larger sense. But for Mitt Romney, I'm not sure that it's it necessarily shows he's a different person than he was in 2012 more than he was in a very different position. All right. So the president uh, has not yet tweeted total and complete exoneration, but he will presumably do something of that kind in the uh, immediate future. Uh, David, let me start with you on this one. How should we read this on the spectrum? It's obviously not a conviction. He doesn't get removed from office. It's an acquittal within the meaning of the the Senate rules. and yet it doesn't really seem like the president has been acquitted. It seems like he has been uh, let off the hook by the partisan discipline of his faction. And so my question is, how, how do we understand this outcome just as a, as a contemporary matter? But also, what do you think when, when somebody like David Priest Twelfth writes uh, the – uh, 20th edition of uh, uh, how to get rid of a president um, and what's, what will the, ep- the description of this episode, how will it sound? You're, you're on to something here, which is we're in a weird... Which is the longevity of your book. No, which is, <laughs> God, America deserves better than uh, David <laughs> Priest Twelfth. But the, that we're in some weird middle zone because there was always a clear result from previous impeachments and uh, Senate trials, even if they weren't positive in some ways, they always had a, okay, now it's time to move on. 
And the president was chastised by the impeachment and by the effort it took to get out of the trial in both the Johnson and the Clinton cases. In this case, there was no Trump effort to secure his own acquittal. Was none. There was no apology, as Clinton did uh, around the time of his Senate trial. There was no effort to moderate his behavior, as Johnson did. To me, it shows that the president hasn't learned anything from this process. And yet, you're right. It's not a full acquittal because it's obvious to everyone, all too obvious, that it wasn't a full trial. So we're in this weird middle zone where we don't know what to make of it. I think it puts us back in the court that we were in during the trial. Frankly, I expected President Trump to do much more during the trial. I expected him to be live tweeting every day and to be attacking his attackers much more viciously than he did. Well, to the extent that he feels he's vindicated now, the wheels are off and he begins the news cycle that began after the Mueller report that led to the Ukraine affair. And so the middle zone may not last very long because he may put himself right back into it. I don't think there's going to be one clear answer from this in terms of was was the president's acquittal real or not and what did he learn from it? What do you think, Margaret? Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think in, to some extent this story will continue. And I did see a press report that the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, Gerald Nadler, was going to perhaps issue a subpoena to John Bolton to have him come up and testify in the House. So there may be yet more to go on this factually. Um, But just keying off of David's point, and I've made this point uh, in a few different outlets, but the Clinton impeachment, and I think the the Nixon impeachment as well, to some extent, there was some cathartic moment when, you know, for Clinton, there were a few actually, and I, I watched the the end of the, the Clinton proceedings. And the, the last, in the closing arguments, the last person to come out and give uh, a defense of Bill Clinton was former Senator Dale Bumpers, who had just left the Senate. And he came out and I, he did something, he did his, his speech to the senators. And there was a couple of points in his speech where he made them all laugh. It seemed like all of the senators in the chamber were laughing, and it was this sort of moment. And then later, as David alluded to, you know, President Clinton coming out into the Rose Garden and essentially apologizing to the nation for what he had put, he said he had put the nation through. Uh, and we just don't have that type of moment. If, if there is, it's only in a little part with this Mitt Romney decision to convict on one of the articles. But vis-a-vis the president, I mean, there just isn't really anything like that. Um, and I think it's just very different uh, from when we've, as a country, have encountered these uh, this impeachment and trial situation in the past. So the other big difference, uh, of course, and is that uh, Bill Clinton at the time knew he was not going to be on the ballot again. And so there was a kind of a, 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 a you know, a finality to the judgment, right? You, you, um, we're not going to remove you and you, you know, get another year in office or a year and a half in office. Um, whereas in this instance, uh, the uh, we're not going to remove you and therefore you are going to be on the ballot in 10 months and the people kind of get a, a more final uh, say in the matter. There's a kind of a, 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 an 
an open quality to, and some of the Republican senators were even open about that. You know, uh, Lamar Alexander said he didn't think removal was the proper remedy because the people have access to the ballot in 10 months. And a lot of people have put a lot of weight on that. So Quinta, at a conceptual level, is the election kind of phase two of the impeachment trial or is the election a kind of broader thing where we're, you know, this will be one data point, but there'll also be, you know, health care and, and, and other stuff? That's a good question. I'm, I'm honestly not sure. I mean, I do think that, you know, in a way, election is part two of impeachment and impeachment was part two of the Mueller investigation and the Mueller investigation was part two of the election and you know you you just you keep going back in a way it feels like we're fighting with different variations and I don't mean to make the argument that the president has made of sort of you know those democrats they've been out to get me since the beginning you know the deep state cabal that kind of thing but that we keep having these battles over the president's behavior in one form or another, and there will always be another one because I think it is fair to say he either is incapable of learning or doesn't want to learn. And the Republican Party, with the exception of Mitt Romney, is allergic to imposing any consequence. And so we just kind of go around and around again in the same way that we're still litigating 2016. It it strikes me that until there is some kind of a clean break, until Trump leaves office for whatever reason, this is just going to keep happening. And even once he does leave office, I don't know if it will stop. What do you think, Margaret? Is there do you do you is is this just a cycle, one cycle in a larger confrontation between Trump and his enemies, or is this is there is there no finality to this at all? So I think the finality, in my view, will come with the election itself. So uh, if if President Trump is reelected, that will, I think, be viewed as sort of a ratification of the changes in the political culture and, and political norms that he has brought. Uh, and if he loses, then it will be viewed as a repudiation of those things. And so it may be the case that, you know, the election is is the final battleground uh, of all of these issues. Um, if it's not, and uh, that President Trump is reelected, then yeah, I think this will this will continue. Um, and it'll probably be worse uh, in a, in a second term. And yeah. All right. So uh, you allude, Margaret, to uh, the fact that Jerry Nadler may now issue a subpoena to Bolton, and so there may be an immediate uh, additional round of of legislative confrontation with the president. So let's game out what that next phase looks like. Um, First of all, David, if I'm Nancy Pelosi today and the president has had actually a pretty good week, you know, he gets acquitted, 
he has a State of the Union where he snubs you and uh, kind of rallies the base. His poll numbers are up. Um, and um, and the Iowa caucus is a disaster for your party of, of who knows what magnitude, but certainly momentary magnitude. Um, is it in Pelosi's strategic advantage right now to provoke a next round, or is her play to, okay, I had to do the impeachment. I never wanted to do the impeachment. Now we're done with that. We're going to let things, we're going to fade to the background, the congressional politics, and let the president, uh, uh, let the presidential candidates uh, set the agenda from here. What's, what's the right, uh, what do you think is in her mind about that? I think more of the former because let's look at it. They could just keep doing investigations and call it oversight because that's what Congress is supposed to do. Having hearings with Bolton or anyone else about what has happened is a legitimate function of Congress. Do they need to call it an impeachment hearing and subpoena for that purpose? Of course not. Uh, that was just a, a red herring thrown out by the president's, uh, by the president's defense team. To the extent that the argument going forward is this man is unfit for office, the Senate failed to act upon that. It is up to the voters. There is nothing Nancy Pelosi would do to continue things like putting Bolton under um, subpoena that, that would support that. That, that. that makes sense to do that. It's about the way in which she does it. If she starts trying to out-Trump Trump by ripping up a speech, by murmuring behind his back, by trying to match the, the way in which he performs his job, she loses. It doesn't work. You can't beat Trump at his own game. After everything that's happened in three years, the fact that he's still got, depending on the poll, you know, 41 to 45 percent, he's not apologizing for a reason. He's not pulling a Bill Clinton and showing an act of contrition because he needs those people to come out and they like that. Nancy Pelosi can't match that. She needs to be methodical and, and keep a very steady approach if she's going to keep that reminder for the election. You talked about the election being phase two of the impeachment trial. We've got a long way away. It would be phase five or six because we're gonna see so many things between now and then. So I think it would be a good political move for her to keep up the pressure on what we call the impeachment issue, but to do it as just saying, this is what Congress is supposed to do. This is what article one is here for. This is what the people elected us to do. What do you think, Margaret? Is, is Pelosi's move now uh, provoke a next round or like basically set this one out? So I, I agree with David. I think that that she, you know, her approach on a lot of this has been uh, when we see something going on that's not, you know, not appropriate or not proper, we are going to look into it. We are going to issue subpoenas. We are going to do these things. I think she will continue that approach. Uh, I don't really see a downside to for example, the Judiciary Committee just, you know, methodically going about its business of identifying issues, you know, conducting investigations, even if they are in this vein. I think they still, you know, a lot of this I think will be in the run up to the election will be what is the narrative that people tell about what this impeachment was about. Each side, uh, you know, on Trump and the Republicans on the other generally, um, and then the Democrat with, with their Demo Democratic presidential candidate 
will be telling starkly different narratives about this. And so I suspect that, uh, you know, in that effort, uh, the, there, will, there will be action by the Congress, and it will fit into presumably into whatever sort of narrative is emerging in the context of the elections. That's what I think. All right. So, Quinta, you have been uh, in the lawfare community, Nancy Pelosi's harshest critic. Um, and uh, you've, you've been uh, generally pretty down on her unwillingness to proceed with, with impeachment and critical of the uh, tactical judgments that she's made against doing that. Um, what, what do you do now if you're her and you've, you know, kind of against your will, done the impeachment thing, you managed to convince one Republican member of the House who had to leave his party and one Republican senator. What's next for Nancy Pelosi? In all fairness, <laughs> I should say that my criticism of Nancy Pelosi for initially failing to move forward with impeachment at all and then failing to move forward with the um, I guess aggressiveness, I would say, that I, I felt the issue merited was always coming from a place of moral and constitutional principle on my part, with the argument being that I am not a strategist and this was actually not a time for strategy, that it was a time to act in defense of moral principle and, you know, let justice be done, though the heavens may fall. But that's that, that's what I'm asking. Right, so, exactly, so, so exactly. Now, so now, finally, right. she's done that. So, now? And so now I'm going to say I'm not a tactician. I'm not good at parliamentary strategizing. And I feel entirely comfortable in leaving this to Nancy Pelosi because it's now moved out of the realm of what I feel comfortable Opining on that said, I do think that from my perspective, it would generally be a good thing for the House to move forward with the general business of oversight, um, including, though not limited to, subpoenaing John Bolton, continuing different aspects of investigating the president's conduct regarding Ukraine. And the reason that I say that is that the House did push through the articles of impeachment relatively quickly with a relatively limited investigation. And I've always felt that one of the real arguments for that was that they could always come back and kind of keep digging into things more later. So it does seem to me that this is kind of a gimme, especially because Bolton seems to be, you know, jumping up and down and waving his hands in the air saying, pick me, pick me. So I will I will say that and I will also say that I defer to Nancy Pelosi's superior strategic judgment. One other thought on Pelosi's calculation here. Remember, she has vulnerable Democratic senators who have gone out on a limb on this and people who could have found an excuse to not vote for articles uh, of impeachment for conviction, I should say, in the Senate. And I'm thinking here of people like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, Doug Jones, who to the extent that they vote for the conviction of the president, are putting themselves out there somewhat. If she then turns around and says, de facto, maybe not these words, but says, you know all that stuff we said about how the president must be removed because he's unfit for office, because he's a threat to the constitutional order? Well, you know what? We lost a vote. 
so I'm never going to mention any of that again. In a sense, she's she's undercutting them and saying, you put yourself out there, and now we're not going to believe any of that anymore because we lost a vote. I think she is aware of that. Even though it's not her chamber, I think she's very aware of that. So before we close this out, I want to just talk about the institutional performance of the Senate a little bit. Um, the The Senate voted essentially not to conduct a trial, but to act as a sort of appellate body reviewing the House's record. Um, I cannot reconcile that with the text of the Constitution, which talks about a trial. Um, but the House, the Senate sort of has plenary authority to define trial however it wants. Um, and uh, Margaret, I'm just curious for your instincts about how we will remember the way the Senate handled its function here, quite apart from the merits of the evidence or the merits of the case against President Trump. Like, what does it mean for the Senate to interpret the trial function as including refusing to have a trial? Um, I guess the way I would answer that is that uh, this history is will never be over. And um, I think one of the stars of this show, even though he's quite quiet, is Mitch McConnell. And if a different set of factual circumstances present themselves, so for example, Democratic president, um, and it's in, and Mitch McConnell is still majority leader, and it's in his interest to have a full-blown trial, he will have no problem uh, repudiating uh, what he has said during these proceedings and going for a full-blown trial in the future. So you think you think there is no precedential value to any of this? All that this will stand for is that the majority does what the majority wants. I yes, uh, I, I do. Um, I mean, this it will. What has happened here will go into the small canon of impeachment history. Uh, but what we've seen in this proceeding is that depending on what sides you're on, um, you know, where there's House managers or President's Defense Council, Democrat, Republican, you draw from the precedent the parts of the, of the precedent that you like that help your case. You ignore the others. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that uh, someone like Mitch McConnell has a, a vast uh, reserve of flexibility uh, when it comes to a different set of circumstances. And this won't won't mean much. Uh, if Again, if, if he's the one that's in charge when this comes up again, it might be a different situation with a different type of majority leader in the Senate. Okay. So one person who is a little bit more conscious of the precedence that he's setting is the Chief Justice. And when this opened, we had some conversations about, hey, one thing that matters is the view that John Roberts takes of his own role. Uh, and we had these two precedents, right? We had the Rehnquist precedent that was quite minimalistic, and we had the awesomely named Salmon Chase precedent during the Johnson trial, which was quite activist and engaged as a kind of presiding officer. David, it seems to me that the John Roberts uh, precedent is wholly consistent with the Rehnquist precedent. That is, do as little as possible, preside, but do not rule. Um, and 
that the two of those together may set a very strong expectation for the role of the chief justice going forward. What do you think? Will we ever see a time when, you know, Chief Justice David Priest the Twelfth, you know, comes in and issues a series of rulings as a in an impeachment trial? First of all, you're putting a lot of pressure on me and my wife to have a second son and name him David Priest to continue this tradition. And I don't appreciate that. Yeah. Well, you're, get on it. You're trying to goad me into bringing up your pants, and I'm not going to do that. <laughs> uh, let me let me say that it is. We're more... gonna wait, wait. Pause. We're gonna we're gonna have to take that out because uh, there is no reference to that. Good so, point. That does sound uh, yeah. really uncomfortable. So um, let me start again. Yeah. Start again. First of all, you're putting a lot of pressure on me in terms of uh, reproduction and uh, David Priest the Twelfth. Putting that aside. I think it is closer to the Rehnquist model, but we have to remember John Roberts was not a potted plant. John Roberts did a few things that he did not have to do. One, he chastised both teams for using language that was inappropriate for the august Senate chamber. I'll return to that in a moment why that's misguided. Secondly, he refused to read some questions from senators, and he did not have to do either of those things. Now, that still did not put him into an activist role, but it did point out the personality of the person who is the Chief Justice of the United States matters. I don't think it sets any more precedent than the Chase Salmon, uh, I'm sorry, I don't think it sets any more precedent than the Salmon Chase or the William Rehnquist precedent set for Roberts. I think it's gonna depend on the personality of the person in that chair at that time. On the August Senate part, I think the, the takeaway I have from all of this is that the conception of the Senate as the world's greatest deliberative body, as a, as a group of people who are essentially above most political issues, that died a long time ago with direct election of senators. Some would argue it was dead before then. This should put the nail in the coffin of that idea. We don't ever want to hear again about how the Senate is somehow qualitatively different than the House in terms of how it sees partisan advantage. That's different than the chief justice question, but hopefully we can use this opportunity to look at the way we look at our political institutions. And if we're not treating them the way they actually act, shame on us. I would also just add very quickly that uh, Senator Majority Leader McConnell structured the trial uh, on party line vote through two different resolutions in such a way that the chief justice actually wasn't in a position to rule on, I don't think, really anything. Uh, and the vote that they ended up having to not call witnesses or subpoena new documents was uh, was a vote that didn't require him to, for example, break a tie. So I think you know the way the chief justice has has acted is is also largely been dictated by the the tremendous amount of control that McConnell exercised over the whole thing from start to finish. All right, let's close out on a high note. Uh, who, in each of your judgments, has been uh, elevated in this process. I mean, it's a process that we're not, uh, you, people have not been, who have been listening to this podcast have not been writing to me notes about how, you know, how admiring they are of the performance of a lot of actors within it. But there are some that I think have probably acquitted themselves quite well. So Quinta, get us started. Give us uh, 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 the name of uh, somebody and who, who has uh, who has emerged larger in your eyes than, than before? 
this is predictable, but I, I am genuinely impressed um, and surprised by Mitt Romney's decision. Um, I think it, whatever he does next and whatever relationship with the Republican Party and the president he ends up reaching, um, it is a genuine act of courage. And the fact that it is such an obvious vote and it shouldn't have been too much to ask for the rest of his colleagues in the Senate to make that vote doesn't undercut how courageous that decision was. David, who uh, who other than Mitt Romney has emerged elevated in your eyes? Let me first uh, foot stomp that on Mitt Romney because I don't think we've mentioned in this podcast he is the first senator to ever vote to convict and remove a president of his own party. It didn't happen before, so something historic did happen here, and it's and it's Mitt Romney. Uh, putting aside whatever you think about his domestic political agenda or his. Uh, partisan beliefs otherwise, Adam Schiff impressed a lot of people with his delivery style, uh, not just in terms of his logic and argumentation of his presentations, but also with his his emphasis and the way in which he, he did it. And I think his status, while of course turning off many on the other side of the aisle, but, but his status is improved somewhat by showing just how effectively he performed as a speaker. And I have to add to that our own Margaret Taylor, because the impeachment feed that we've been doing on the wow. podcasts has been, I think, a public service that will last for a long time. And truly, I think you've done a remarkable job shepherding that process. And Michaela Fogel, who has been amazing throughout that process. Margaret, other than yourself, um, who, who, who do you think has emerged elevated from this process? So I guess I will go with... Uh, for, for two different categories. The first one um, is Justin Amash, who you uh, referenced uh, earlier. He was a Republican, I think saw this whole sort of train coming down the tracks, um, figured out how he felt about it, decided to leave the party, is now a registered independent, uh, but I think really is still viewed in among some of the Republicans as someone who was pretty courageous in, in coming out the way that he did. Um, so that's sort of one category. Uh, just joining David a little bit uh, on sort of the House managers, it, it's been said that being a House manager is a way for people in the House of Representatives to sort of elevate them a career, elevate a personality. And I think Nancy Pelosi very deliberately chose the people she chose for various reasons. But I did. I do think she wanted to... Um, elevate certain people. And so I think Val Demings did a really amazing job. Um, I thought Jason Crow did a, was great too, Hakeem Jeffries. Uh, I've, I viewed Sylvia Garcia also. I viewed this as a little bit of an audition for the House managers to see what their political futures might be in, for example, leadership in the House of Representatives, um, or maybe even, even something more than that. So, I mean, it's worth remembering that uh it was the Bill Clinton impeachment that elevated Lindsey Graham to uh, the possibility of running statewide in South Carolina, uh, as well as Asa Hutchinson uh, in, in Arkansas. Ben, let me turn it to you. Who, who's the winner in your, in your book? I will name also two categories of people. Um, so the first is 
I think that Margaret's longstanding point that Mitch McConnell is somebody who is of enormous substance and capability and that, you know, one underestimates at great peril has really been borne out by the last couple of weeks. He did not have the votes going in, facilitate, give himself the time to get the votes uh, and then he did it. And I think, you know, people love to hate Mitch McConnell, but the hate should be uh, mingled with a fair degree of admiration because he is a person of enormous capability and talent. Um, the second category of people who were not directly involved in the trial but were the subject of the trial is the 17 witnesses who testified in the House proceedings. We've talked a fair bit about Bolton. Uh, we have not talked about the people whose testimony they actually got, which formed the basis of the entire enterprise. That, of course, started with the whistleblower who never testified, but it includes people who will, uh, you know, for better or for worse in their lives, be known for this for the rest of their lives, whether it's Masha Yovanovitch or Bill Taylor or Fiona Hill. Um, and you know, that's a, that is a major uh, legacy that some of them have and, and leave, and it will, as it will for Romney, it will play badly for them in the short term, but I think history will treat them extremely kindly. The Impeachment is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo in Washington, D.C. From the Goat Rodeo team, Supervising producer, Megan Adolsky. Creative producer, Shar Dreyer. Executive producer, Ian Enright. From the Lawfare team, Susan Hennessy, Benjamin Wittes, Margaret Taylor, Michaela Fogel, Quinta Jurassic, Jacob Schultz, David Priest, Hadley Baker, Hannah Chris. Special thanks to Caitlin Riley and John Weiss. Thank you for listening. <laughs>